Ladies and gentlemen, if, if I could have your attention, please. My name is Andrew Hamilton. I am the Vice-Chancellor of Oxford University. And it's an enormous pleasure for me this evening to welcome all of you and very especially to welcome Jim Martin to speak to us. 2012 has been a rather marvellous year in the UK. Uh, we've had Olympics, we've had a celebration of a second, di of, a, of a diamond jubilee. Well, tonight we're going to celebrate a second diamond jubilee because 2012 is the 60th anniversary of the year that James Martin came up to Keeble College, Oxford to read physics. And so it's a delight, 60 years on, Jim, to welcome you to Oxford now to give your lecture this evening. And, and being in the Martin Wood Lecture Theatre is an important recognition. While I think in 1952 this lecture theatre wasn't here, but certainly, certainly the Clarendon Labs were very much Jim's home across the road from Keeble for his years in Oxford. And it's been an enormous pleasure for me since I became Vice-Chancellor to welcome Jim to Oxford on many occasions. Jim and his wife Lillian, who's also with us this evening, are both great friends and supporters of the university and visit us three times a year. And I and my wife Jenny always have a delightful summer séjour with them in Vermont. And so this evening, it's my responsibility to introduce Jim. Uh, he founded, as all of you know, one of the most exciting initiatives in Oxford in recent years, the Oxford Martin School, established in 2005 with its avowed purpose very much to foster and facilitate innovative interdisciplinary research on critical problems of importance in the 21st century and the support that Jim has provided for the Oxford Martin School both at its initial founding and then a magnificently generous gift to allow a matching of other benefactors supporting research at the school that very much represents the largest individual benefaction to the university Re certainly in recent centuries, and I think that we can reasonably say in the 900-year history of the university. So it's been a magnificent opportunity for Oxford to focus resources, to focus the minds of Oxford dons, Oxford researchers, on interdisciplinary problems of importance to mankind. Jim himself has spent many, many years researching and writing about issues of importance in the second half of the 20th century and now this beginning of the 21st century. Jim has written more textbooks than any living person. 104 at last count. That's remarkably prolific. I've already asked Ian Golden why he is so far behind, and I'm sure <laughs> the same could certainly be applied to me and everyone else in this room. 
Jim's uh, uh, output has been prolific, but it has been important as well. He wrote The Meaning of the 21st Century with, to great acclaim. It was made into a major film. And another book of his that was highly regarded was The Wired Society, and that Wy The Wired Society was uh, a Pulitzer Prize nominee. Jim was a pioneer in the automation of software development and his contributions to the incredible pace of change in the world of, of uh, computer technology and software technology and the impact that his work has had on that rate of change. This was very much recognized a few years ago at the 25th anniversary edition of the magazine Computer World, which recognized Jim as the fourth highest rank individual. And remember, we're think thinking of Stephen Jobs and, and Bill Gates and others in that list. He was ranked fourth most influential person in the development of computer technology. He was a member of the Scientific Advisory Board of the US Department of Defense. He has been an honorary life member of the Royal Institution, a fellow of the World Academy of Arts and Sciences, an honorary fellow of Keeble College, Oxford, and a senior fellow of the James Martin Center for Non-Proliferation Studies in Monterey, California. Jim's importance to this field, Jim's importance to the world, and its development in recent decades has been recognized by the award of honorary doctorates from all six continents, which is a remarkable achievement, Jim, a remarkable achievement. And, and ladies and gentlemen, it's an enormous pleasure for me, on behalf of all of us at the University of Oxford, to welcome Jim to the podium and to ask him to address us on the subject, the transformation of humankind. Jim. Thank you, Vice Chancellor. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming here. It's sometimes said that if you're in the middle of a revolution, you can't see what's going on. Uh, we now are really in the middle of the biggest revolution ever on Earth. It's the transition from the time when humans were peasants with, with kings living in what today would be regarded as great poverty, very bad medicine, and so on. The transition from that to a future uh, renaissance, a global Renaissance at the end of this century. The big question mark is what is that Renaissance going to look like? Anyway, quite incredible uh, transition, so that's what I want to talk about. I think, uh, in my view, it started in 1750. There have been a lot of great scientists uh, before 1750, but not really any of them dealing with technology. And the use of technology really was started in the Midlands by a group of people who traveled to each other's houses on horseback. They were called the Lunar Society because they traveled on full nights, full moonlight nights, where there weren't too many um, uh, people attacking them. And together, they put together a set of ideas. They weren't academics. 
They weren't uh, aristocrats, they weren't wealthy, but they were incredibly ingenious. They put together a set of ideas which became the Industrial Revolution. And so that's the beginning of it. Now I'm going to uh, use this curve to say that the red on there represents the percentage of the transformation that has happened in, and stops at the end of the 21st century. And then beyond that, I think uh, the, the red part, I think we're going to go through many rough, uh, difficult uh, paradigm shifts. So a lot of paradigm shifts in your lifetime, many of you. And then maybe some of the most uh, uh, disruptive things which are, are wrong with the planet today will perhaps have been put right by the end of the red part of the curve. And then we go on to, of course, continued progress but without the uh, extreme disruptions that we're going to see in the rest of this uh, century. And so I think, like to think of the uh, period after the red part of the curve as being a, a global uh, renaissance for mankind and it's very interesting to speculate what that might be like. It's important, I think, to speculate what the future might be like because it really helps us to decide what types of research are likely to be the most valuable. What sort of results do we want from today's research as we look at the future? The Earth has a thin, very complex surface ecology, uh, very thin indeed. If a scale model of the Earth was built uh, where the model stretched from here to the Sheldonian, the uh, surface, which is the ecology of the Earth, would be as, as thin as the, uh, the, sh the shell of an egg. So it's a very, a very tiny sh shell, and that's what we live in, and that's what we're messing up at the moment, and that's the whole future of humanity, of course, living in this very uh, uh, thin shell around the Earth. Now, we look at past ages uh, in terms of geology, the things which have happened with geology, and it came as a surprise, I think, for the geologists when people started to say about 10 years ago that we've moved into a new era now. The, Hol the Holocene went on for um, 11,700 years. And we've now moved into an era which is called the Anthropocene, Anthrop meaning human. And the reason for that is that humans are doing more to change the environment of the Earth than anything else. So this is a, a very different period with humans changing the Earth itself, possibly in very dangerous ways, as I'm sure you know. And anyway, it was called the Anthropocene because we've got human population, massive industry, massive cities, massive energy use. And the human population has grown to 7 billion now and will continue to grow even faster. Uh, there's quite a lot of uh, thoughtless behavior, in fact, almost no thought about how humans are affecting the planet and what the consequences of that are. So an accelerating destruction of the environment, non-sustainable growth, and climate destabilization. So the Anthropocene uh, is self-destructive, which is a horrifying statement. And it's your generation to stop that. We've got to make a change, because we can't go on uh, with the situation where the uh, Anthropocene is, is being destroyed by, by humanity. And uh, there's no other complex life within uh, 20 trillion miles, not billion, trillion, no complex life within a, a trillion miles. So we are sort of isolated in time, as you look at the extreme difference between now and the last billion years on Earth, and we're isolated in space uh, incredibly. It will be a very long time before we can send a space vehicle to the nearest place that has an intelligent life, although we might send one to Mars, one hopes. And so percentage of the transformation, this was the Lunar Club, and they started the Industrial Revolution. 
and uh, we moved into a period of exponential growth, which we're in now and has been going on for uh, quite a long time. And I think we'll move from that into uh, a period in which there are paradigm shifts. And I want to talk about some of those paradigm shifts, some of them very disruptive, probably. <coughs> so the rest of this century is going to be pretty wild, very uh, interesting in the achievements that are possible, but very alarming in some of the disruptive paradigm shifts that we face. And so, as I was saying, the period of uh, uh, revolutionary paradigm shifts will probably be followed by a smoother period of continuous progress, one hopes, in a, a global renaissance if we do the right things. And uh, now, the people who work on stem cells here tell me that uh, stem cells have got to a point where uh, life expectancy of somebody who is living well and doing the right things and is living in a wealthy community, life expectancy is 120 years now with, with stem cell research. Now, at my ripe old age, I've not been a grandfather. My wife has not been a grandmother until four months ago. And so we ask ourselves the question now, these people are going to live probably for 120 years. What on earth is life going to be like? And certainly you don't want to train them so they spend 55 years working and then 65 years on a golf course. So what, what, what sort of preparations can be made as one brings up children today for the era that we're talking about? Well, a long lifespan could be awful if the last 30 years of it was spent in a wheelchair. So when we say long lifespan, we really must mean health span, so that they can be healthy for uh, the period that they live. It can be very boring. I remember my grandfather, when he was 70, saying, life just isn't worth living when you get to 70. There's nothing interesting. And that's because he wasn't brought up in a, an intellectual world. So we want to get, make sure that the, it's, there's an intellect span and a culture span and something which makes the highest quality of life during this uh, period of time, and eventually they will progress into a renaissance where it's not just them, it's the whole of society that will be connecting together to do the things which one hopes make life enjoyable towards the end of the century. We could see the birth of a global renaissance, I hope we will by that time, but we could also see a collapse into extreme chaos. And uh, we'll probably see both. So I expect we'll see both extreme chaos and the move towards uh, a, a global renaissance during this time period. You can imagine a film, a two-hour film made to, to scale to represent the time from when there was first life on Earth and, until now. And if that film was uh, two hours long, um, the start would be the first uh, creatures on Earth. In 23 minutes, uh, there will be the first known footprints. In 80 minutes, there would be dinosaurs. There wouldn't be humans until the last two seconds of the film. And uh, there wouldn't be civilization until the last two frames of the film. And the period of time which we're talking about here, the, the transition since 1750, would be uh, just right at the very edge of the frame. So as one look at that, looks at that time span, it's almost as though we have an explosion, you know, life evolving for such a long time, and suddenly the explosive change that we are responsible for and that our children and grandchildren will live in. Well, we very much need to ask the question, how can we make their life as good as possible? How can we make sure they do the right thing in a very dangerous 
era, which is the 21st century. Now, we talk about humanity's footprint, and that's the percentage of uh, renewable resources that we're consuming. And uh, in 1750, we were consuming very little, something like 10% of the renewable resources. By the middle of the 20th century, it went up to 50%, then it went up to 100%, and now we're very close to it going up to 200%. That means the resources we are consuming are 200% of what the Earth can supply. So obviously that can't continue for very long, so a crunch of some sort is, is coming. And uh, each year humankind loses 24 billion tons of topsoil, uh, 15 uh, million acres of new desert is uh, created, 160 tons of aquifer water is uh, used up and not renewed, and uh, we destroy enormous numbers of fish in the ocean, uh, lose 44 million acres of forest and uh, pump 20 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the earth. And the Amazon forest, the amount of Amazon forest that is uh, burnt and destroyed by fire every year is the size of Belgium. I was giving this lecture and there was somebody from Belgium in the audience. He said, you know, the only thing Belgium is famous for is that it's the same size as the amount of Amazon forest that gets burnt every year. Scientists, including God, I think Richard Dawkins is joining us for dinner tonight. Scientists, including God, sometimes have to abandon an experiment. In the next eight years, there will, there will be twice the number of cars. Well, the number of cars in England will go down a little. The number of cars in America will go down a little. But China will have enormous numbers of cars. And then following that, India. And uh, so we are increasing the amount of um, atmospheric carbon We've uh, put, put it up by uh, levels which are enormously higher than they, they were 800,000 years ago. The amount of hydrocarbon that we burn each year took millions of years to form. And the danger is that in your lifetime, we may reach a point in which, unless we take coordinated action to stop it, we get to a point where this becomes irreversible, a point where we... Uh, uh, create a, a environmental damage which is too strong and accelerating too fast to, to be uh, reversible. That's, that's a very scary uh, comment and a uh, very uh, important uh, set of actions needed to stop it. The world population, as everybody knows, has been going up very fast indeed uh, and has uh, reached uh, 7 billion now. It will be, uh, soon be 8 billion. But uh, fertility rates, the number of women number of children women have is dropping. And it's dropping very fast. And it's dropping so fast that we're going to reach the top of the curve and then it's going to start coming down. It'll be a fairly slow top, like when you throw a cricket ball in the air. It'll be quite a long time before it uh, come, comes down again. These women are in India. And uh, five years ago, the number of children per woman in India was about uh, seven. And now it's dropped to about 2.5. It's still dropping. I think it'll probably drop to about 1.5. And uh, so this is what is going to enable us to get control of the population coming down. And here's the fertility rate. The colors showing different fertility rates in different parts of the world. And Africa stands out here with the strong colors, partly because women are just not educated in those countries. They, most of them can't read. and uh, the same is true in the purple uh, country, which is Afghanistan, there, 
and in uh, Saudi Arabia. So that one of the things that we really need to do for our own benefit, for the benefit of the planet, is to get a better quality of life into Africa, make the women learn to read. When they learn to read, the fertility rate drops. When we set up interesting jobs for them, the fertility rate drops. When we give them a good education, it drops. And when we get to a stage where the jobs are more exciting than anything else, Taiwan, for example, half the women in Taiwan want to be hedge fund managers. And there are jobs there which pay a huge amount of money. So the women are very late having babies, often don't get married in Taiwan. And so this is the, uh, one, of the, one of the driving forces. So a huge argument for getting women having the most interesting jobs they possibly can. <coughs> China introduced a one-child policy and that was in 1979. And at the time it did that, its population was uh, 975 million. But now it's 1.35 billion. How can it have gone up by such an enormous amount when they have a one-child policy? Well, of course, it wasn't quite one child. It was more like 1.5. But certainly it ought to have lowered population. There's something else. There's something else is that when they declared the one-child policy, the average age of life in China was 35. Now the average age of life is 70. And so as you increase life expectancy, that has an effect on population. So population, world population relates to children born as well as increased uh, lifespan. Now that increase in China is going to apply to much of the developing world today as it, it brings its fertility rate down, but lifespan doubles in, in, in many countries. Same pattern, almost the same ratios as China. So we are, uh, we'll be at 8, 8 billion people by 2030. Um, uh, by 2050, about 9 billion. And then uh, largely because of the uh, longer expectancy, life expectancy by 2070, about 10 billion. And probably the population won't go higher than roughly 10 billion. That will be around about the peak. But that raises a huge question. Can we really feed that many uh, people? And the answer is yes, but only if the capability to feed them is planned 20 years ahead. So a long, long amount of planning. <coughs> and uh, uh, at the moment, there's not much evidence that that long amount of planning is, is going to take place. So one word I hope never comes into our vocabulary is gigafamine. But it's a, certainly a possibility that we could see a famine in 20, uh, 40 years' time, which where, where a billion people die from it. A huge need to stop that. Now, I'll use this pattern on the slides to um, indicate a, a paradigm shift. So when there's a sphere-wrenching paradigm shift, I'll use this pattern. And uh, large-scale uh, automated uh, farming with little water. Hydroponics farming is one example of this. And this is a massive uh, food factory in Britain. And... Uh, uh, this particular one uh, grows cucumbers, and that particular hydroponics factory uses very little water, but it can grow cucumbers. The intent is to grow cucumbers, one-fifth of all the cucumbers grown in, in, in England, in Britain, coming from that uh, building. And there's another one nearby which uh, does the same with tomatoes, another one <coughs> nearby which does the same with peppers. Now, these are the roots there. There's very little water. You can see the roots. And the, the roots are coming into a fiber where there's a, a, a solution, nutrient solution. And what you can do with a factory like that is adjust the nutrients until you get the highest growth, but you can also adjust them to get the very best taste. 
the best tasting strawberries I've ever had have come from a hydroponics farm that's associated with a very expensive restaurant in, in Scotland. And uh, in uh, India, most of India, much of India looks like this. You fly over India, large part of the land, you can't grow food, you've got no soil, or where they did have good agricultural soil, they turn it into desert. And so uh, you could, and uh, almost certainly this is one of the things we absolutely have to do, put food factories, rather like the one I was illustrating there, which don't take much water. We've got the technology to grow a huge amount of food, even in a, a desert-like area like that. China, amazingly, and China's got 1.35 billion people, amazingly, only 10% of the land in China is arable. So China can't feed its own people. Hasn't got enough water. Uh, to feed its own people. And uh, so this sort of facility, I'm sure you're going to see massive food factories being built uh, in China, with, with probably with hydroponics because of the shortage of water. And we could have a vertical hydroponics farm. So you might imagine 10 layers, maybe 20 layers on top of each other, possibly in a city. The shape, shape of it being uh, an arc facing the uh, sun so it gets a lot of sunlight all, all the time. This would be a huge amount of food from a fairly small footprint as that gets built. Nobody's built a <coughs> vertical farm like that yet, but there's lots of designs for doing it, <coughs> and I'm sure it's going to happen. And here you've got automated control of the nutrients in, in the farm. So now one of, the, one of the things that we can do in these farms is optimize the nutrients to get the very best results. A farmer looking at it, or somebody looking after plants in a greenhouse, looks at the leaves and can tell whether a plant is happy by looking at the leaf. You can tell lots of things by looking at the leaf. I've been wandering around with people like that doing it. They look at the leaf and say, it needs more potassium. Yeah. But a computer can do that wonderfully well, much, much better than a skilled human farmer. So part of the process is automation, automated sensitivity to plant health and how you want to change the nutrients depending upon the condition of, of the plant. There's one extraordinary thing happened here, and that is uh, Professor Lee and Dolan and uh, a team working with him changed the roots on food growing plants, uh, the main, main grain plants. And uh, the, the roots on, on plants look rather like the ones we had a picture of a moment ago. Now you, you get plants which, uh, where the roots are in, incredibly thin, masses of roots. In fact, they look like my wife's hair, and <laughs> very different from normal roots. And what they did when they tested that in the field, they, they managed to increase the uh, food yield by 100%, doubling the food, food yield. And this raises a very interesting question here, and that is, how on earth do you get from a, uh, a research laboratory in Oxford, a small research laboratory here, how on earth do you get from that to changing the whole of world agriculture? Of course, if you could uh, double the uh, productivity of the main grain crops across the planet, that would enormously change world agriculture. How, how do we uh, go on that journey? How do we make that journey succeed? And that's the question I ask myself over and over again as I see these brilliant uh, things being done here. Okay, it's absolutely great. It's never been done before. It'll have a huge effect on the planet, but how do we get it from Oxford to the big world out there? And that's, that's a very difficult thing to do. And uh, anyway, 100% uh, improvement. Water is going to be a problem. Each year, mankind uses 160 billion tons 
of water that is not being replenished. And the reason we can do that is that most countries have got huge aquifers, that is, underground reservoirs uh, of enormous size. And the main reason the Green Revolution was so successful is that it increased the amount of water being used by using the aquifers. And amazingly, nobody put any management into place, so we don't know how full the aquifers are. Several aquifers have run out, people surprised, and suddenly the productivity has dropped. And so all over the world, you've got aquifers now which are getting short of water. So one of the problems is going to be running out of water in the aquifers. And uh, the amount of uh, water that we use and don't replace is 25 million water trucks like this uh, every day. And so that will be a, a 300,000 mile long convoy of water trucks every day. That's uh, 37 times the diameter of the earth. This is the water which we are using and not replacing. It's enormous, and we can't go on like that. So once again, there's going to be a, a crunch in the uh, use of water on the planet. This is Pakistan. Pakistan is entirely dependent upon the Indus River, and it's taken the many channels from the Indus River to build farms. And uh, at the moment, the Indus River has uh, got more water than it's ever had, so that's great. So it's looking very good for Pakistan in growing, growing food. But the reason it's got more water than it's ever had is that the glaciers are melting. Global warming is causing the glaciers to melt, and when they have melted, then to a large extent, the Indus River will dry up. And what's Pakistan going to do then? Probably go to war with India. And um, so many glaciers will have no ice, uh, many large rivers will dry up, some of them have already dried up, and many aquifers will empty. And so we need to know the numbers, we need to know the effect of this, we need to know what, what can we do about it. A lot of things we can do about it. For example, the buildings everywhere uh, could collect water on their roofs, but almost all the rainwater which comes down, we just let it run down the gutter and down the street. We don't use it, we don't collect the rainwater. And uh, it's easy to collect the rainwater. I collect rainwater. I live on an island, and the island has absolutely no water. You can't uh, drill down because it would be just seawater. And so the island I have is, I have to be totally self-dependent on water. And yet it has the most lush vegetation you can possibly imagine. This is because we collect the water and then have computerized uh, lines going, taking the right amount of water to the, to the different plants there. So we can catch the rainwater. But all over the planet, we're not doing that. And this is Pakistan again. The, the, when the monsoon comes, you get enormous flooding. You probably remember all the terrible news stories about a year ago of the flooding in Pakistan, really deep water, colossal flooding. Well, all of that uh, monsoon water could have been channeled into the aquifers. In reality, none of it is channeled into the aquifers. So all, all over the planet, we can look at these stories of, of waste and say we're wasting our water to an incredible extent. We can stop that. We're wasting other resources to an incredible extent. We can stop that. And these things are going to become very important as we get you know, tighter and tighter with less water and closer to the, the uh, running out of other um, assets. The earnings in the United States have gone up enormously. Um, the earnings were very low in the Industrial Revolution. And uh, so much of the rest of the world is now watching television, seeing films, 
and starting to say, we want to be the same. We want to have the goods that Americans have got, the cars that Americans have got, and so on. And so uh, there's going to be a very rapid increase in expectations from the developing world. And so that's a crunch that's coming. Now, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere in parts per million has, is measured, and it has a strong effect on climate change and, and global warming. And uh, there's one great sort of star of the subject, and that's Jim Hansen, who was the uh, NASA ch chief scientist. And he uh, has lots of computer models and makes lots of speeches. And he said, we can't really survive unless we get the parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere down to 350. So he uses this number 350. Over and over again, you've got all sorts of demonstrations like this with the number 350. But the reality of the matter is that, realistically, there's no way we can get to 350. So here you've got the sort of the top uh, scientist in, in climate change uh, making a statement, you've got to get to 350 when it's really impossible to, to get to 350. So we need to take a very realistic view of what uh, that means. If we get up to um, 467 parts in a million, we might do that by... by uh, uh, 2025, then the climate is going to be very bad compared with the climate uh, today. It's interesting that in the recent American election, all the big problems which you're talking about here, all the big problems of the planet, there wasn't a single mention of one of them in the American election until right at the end, Sandy swept into New York and caused devastation in New York. Then Mayor Bloomberg said, this is caused by climate change. That's the first time climate change has ever been used by any politician in America. Uh, clear air turbulence, as the um, climate uh, gets uh, much more severe, you begin to get uh, clear air turbulence. Uh, and uh, uh, the pilot in his cabin can spot thunder, can spot most turbulence, where the instruments cannot detect clear air turbulence. And clear air turbulence is the plane going into a sudden shear where it drops uh, with an acceleration of g for about a second, possibly two seconds, and then comes back again. And when that happens, if you haven't got your seatbelt fastened, you're probably going to smash your head on the ceiling of the plane. So where clear air turbulence has happened, there have been uh, deaths. And if it gets uh, somewhat common for it to happen, then they'll have to design planes so that the crew can tell every seatbelt. And uh, anybody who hasn't got a seatbelt fastened, they'll know. And they'll go and make sure they do fasten their seatbelt. But the people who have been in clear air turbulence say they don't want to fly again. It's absolutely terrifying. So I think we're going to get to a point where a lot of uh, businessmen are going to be totally scared to fly. And so therefore, they'll uh, want virtual presence rooms so they can have very detailed meetings where you see the other person's face, large size. You can read the body language of the person at the other end. In fact, a computer might help you to read the body language. Um, virtual presence technology works extremely well indeed. We ought to be using a lot of it in Oxford. I'm not aware of any uh, use of virtual presence technology in Oxford, but it's extremely valuable. I always think there ought to be high bandwidth connection between here and Cambridge, where we have virtual presence rooms in, in Oxford and Cambridge so that they can communicate with one another. Where the hell, where the hell is Cambridge? Um, anyway, carbon dioxide in, in the atmosphere, there's one huge danger, and that is that uh, there uh, will be a tipping point sooner or later in which we get runaway change. In, in the climate. We don't know quite where that will be, 
It might be um, 25 years away, it might be 35 years away, but this is a, a, a pretty scary aspect of the future as we start to analyze the climate. Now, we uh, want to grow our GDP. So everywhere you go, the arguments about is, is America growing its economy fast enough, is Europe growing its economy fast enough, and so on. And if we continue to associate uh, GDP with assets that are not replaceable, assets which are very expensive, then we, we simply can't achieve what the economists and politicians say we want to achieve. But there's another word which is, uh, I, I never hear it used, I think it ought to be very strongly used in the INET study of future economies. That is eco-affluence. What I mean by that is increasing affluence, increasing well-being without damaging the ecology. There are all manner of things which enormously raise the quality of life and the enjoyment of life without damaging the, um, the, the, um, the, uh, the, the environment. I put a list of them here. The list could go on for three pages. Just, just no end of different forms of uh, eco-affluence. We might demonstrate uh, sustainability in a city like this. And in this city, all of the uh, lights there are, are driven by wind power. And it's deliberately done so that people understand that when the wind stops, then the, uh, the lights fade like that. So a clear demonstration that we are dependent on sustain sustainability. And anyway, we can build great lifestyles without destroying the planet. And we're going to have to do that. So this means there's got to be a change in the vocabulary of economists. They've got to start looking at the things which are measurable, increased GDP possibly, but do, do so without damaging the ecology and the environment. GNP, GDP growth by itself doesn't equate to happiness. Eco-affluent growth does. And so we need a rapid evolution into eco-affluence. Moving from a peacetime to a wartime economy. In 1940, we had to move from a peacetime economy to a wartime economy. And that was pretty painful. But sooner or later, we've got to move from a peacetime economy to a decarbonized economy. So would it be 1920 when we set out to move to a decarbonized economy? Probably not. Uh, no, 2020. Will it be 2030? It may be. But the important thing to say is the longer you leave it, the more painful it will be and the more expensive it will be. But sooner or later, we've got to move to a, a decarbonized uh, economy. And a decarbonized economy must be global, which means there's got to be agreement between China and America and India. And uh, there is no. Uh, way we were close to getting any sort of agreement in, in Copenhagen. In fact, one of the concerns is all the big political meetings, Kyoto, Copenhagen, they've all been really failures and haven't uh, allowed us to succeed in doing anything. Meanwhile, the amount of carbon we're putting into the atmosphere is going up and up and up. And the carbon is coming mainly from one source, and that is coal. And the coal industry uh, wants to keep on using coal as long as it can. Now, there are lots of solutions. This photograph is a real photograph. It's in India, and they have a, a very uh, large canal of water taking water to a city. And they've covered the canal with uh, solar panels. And uh, that's quite a nice thing to do. India is very dusty. And if you've got solar panels on top of the canal, then somebody could wash the panels. 
And uh, so lo lots of different solutions. <coughs> this is the top of Greenland. And Greenland is melting, and the water is pouring down uh, uh, gullies like this. And uh, so an interesting question is, the, the whole subject of geoengineering is a very difficult subject. There are lots of ways we could do geoengineering and, and lessen the uh, harm to the, the planet. But everything we do would severely hurt some countries. And so how can you do that? How can you compensate? How can you get global agreement about uh, geoengineering? Very difficult at the present time. It might become easier when we have much more chaos. But you could conceivably have um, geoengineering on the top of Greenland. That wouldn't hurt anybody else. So you could have uh, lots of things. The top of Greenland is very solid. You can walk on it, massive ice there. And you could uh, set up uh, facilities which pump uh, uh, mist into, into the atmosphere there to, to substantially lessen the amount of sunlight that is melting Greenland. You could do the same with the polar ice. Polar ice is melting at a horrifying rate, faster than we expected it to uh, uh, disappear. And so again, the question, can you have a localized form of geoengineering just related to the polar ice or just related to Greenland? Lots of possible solutions. Fusion. I think the future of fusion is almost certainly circular, relatively small circular tokamaks. Now, they need a lot more research. There are problems with the ones that exist, but that's always true at the beginning of a period of complex science. So instead of spending the, the billions on massive solutions, which will probably never work, it would be a good idea to spend a fraction of that money on the small fusion devices, because once they work and you can mass produce them in huge quantities, then that is going to be a new source of clean energy which may become, I'm sure by the end of the century, the predominant form of clean energy is going to be fusion. People who talk about um, the, the, the creatures on, on Earth here, Wilson and so on, say the biggest uh, biomass on the planet is, is humans. Well, that's not quite true. There's one creature with a bigger biomass, and that is cows. And uh, cows are the second largest cause of global warming after coal. It's not petroleum, it's cows. Um, and they um, emit, a single, a single cow emits 600 litres of methane per day through, through belching and the rest of it. And methane is, is, is much more dangerous than carbon. Carbon lasts for uh, a very long time. Methane is about uh, 23 times as powerful in, as carbon in, in the damage that it does. But it only lasts for a relatively short time. 10 or 15 years in the atmosphere. But there's a huge uh, need to uh, say, let's uh, get rid of the cows. The weight of cows on Earth exceeds the weight of humans. They occupy a land area that's larger than the United States. Um, you look at the developing world like China, everybody was eating rice 10 years ago. Now there are McDonald's everywhere. And the cities where expensive rich people live, they want the most spectacular steak restaurants that they can possibly uh, developed, so the consumption of steak is going up. To reduce the planet's cows from 1.5 billion to, say, 200,000 would be an extremely difficult thing to do. Farmers would go crazy at the very idea of doing that, but we m may have to do it. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> we have lots of computer models, hugely complex uh, computer models, studying the atmosphere, studying just about everything, studying the economy. Uh, many, many complex things. 
And one of the things that has happened here is that uh, Tim Palmer has introduced a new way of creating models. Instead of modeling each incident or each event, you model it in a statistical way with a stochastic model. And with a st stochastic model, you can get the results we want in modeling the climate, modeling any other things, which you can create models which are 10,000 times more powerful. And so he's talked to the supercomputer manufacturers. He said, will you please put hardware on the chips so that we have st stochastic chips in uh, supercomputers? So this is a, an extraordinary, so many, we, we just close to it, so many extraordinary discoveries, extraordinary things going on at Oxford. And uh, so computer models can show global warming, and uh, one degree will occur around about 2020. The shaded part I put in, in the middle of this is the uh, effect it has because uh, the dust in the atmosphere lowers the sunlight going to farms. And so you're getting farms which are lowering in productivity, lowering in profits. So there are quite a lot of places where farms are closing uh, because of the climate. Two degrees, it gets much worse. Three degrees, maybe 2050, gets very bad. And so this is one of the reasons why uh, it's going to be much more difficult to grow the quantity of food that we need to feed 10 million people with conventional farming. We're going to need other means of getting food. So a lot of crunches. Climate disintegration, water, farms closing, famine, um, non-destructible resources. And so we are moving into a time where it's really going to be Darwinian. And we're going to move into a time where, where it's survival of the fittest. And a lot of people really don't like you to use the word Darwinian or survival of the fittest. But really, that's what is shaping up on the planet in many ways. So who will be the big survivors? China, definitely. China, the top uh, 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 the people who run China are incredibly knowledgeable about what's happening to the planet. Uh, USA, because it's so... Uh, uh, creative. If there is a crisis, USA seems to be capable of creating a new manufacturing industry. It's extremely good at very complex project management. Uh, India, following China about 15 years later, um, being a, a huge country. Uh, Russia. Why Russia? Well, uh, Russia is huge. It, it covers 11 and a half time zones, and its population is only 140 million. Uh, it's all very close to the population of, of uh, Japan, but it's 45 times the size of Japan. So you've got a massive land area in uh, Russia with a relatively small number of people to feed. So um, I expect this whole area at the top of Russia is going to be one of the great breadbaskets of the world 20 years from now or 30 years from now. And um, something that might go against that is uh, culture instability of the country of Russia. But I, I suspect Russia is going to be one of the winners in the countries we look at now. It's got the largest freshwater lake in the world. One lake there has got one-fifth of the freshwater on the planet. So it's, it's, it solves its water problem. Now, if it's politically incorrect to say Darwinian, if it's politically incorrect to say survival of the fittest, I now want to say something which is much worse. The, the big survivors are going to be corporations, global multinational corporations. One of the things that uh, amazes me is that uh, Walmart is, is bigger than Israel, bigger than the country of Israel. This is the uh, Walmart uh, revenue is 447 billion, and that is uh, uh, twice the size of the GDP of Israel. 
And so you're going to get many multinational corporations. What is happening? They're starting to link together. So we've got technologies where we have real-time computing, and you want to have real-time connections with your customers, real-time connections with your suppliers. So we're getting interlinkage, as, as well as mergers and acquisitions of corporations everywhere. And that is going to give us a huge uh, force. Um, when you ask you the survivors are these, these corporations, most of them are absolutely going to survive. And uh, when you're on the board of one of the corporations we're talking about here, the, the thing they say to you before you go to your first board meeting is your primary goal, never forget this, all the time, no matter what happens, the reason you are here is to increase shareholder value. And it sometimes seems that there's no other value that they're working on on the board. Okay, well, um, uh, big money PR, the, the uh, American Coalition for clean coal. There are, there are 15 coal companies with a combined revenue of 146 billion. And they spend more than 1% of that on PR. And what they're telling the public is coal is clean. Coal is the cleanest form of energy. Now, there's a, a, a cleaner uh, air task force in the States which has studied coal. Coal plants produce a huge amount of particles which are 2.5 microns and they can get through the filters into your lung. You've got tiny little holes in your lung which are the perfect size to hold these uh, 2.5 micron particles. And so in the United States alone, they estimate that 24,000 people die each year from, from coal. And in addition to that, 2,800 contact lung cancer each year. There's not been a single person who's died from nuclear power since, since Chernobyl. Uh, even in Fukushima, nobody died from nuclear power. Lots of people died from the flooding and the tsunami and everything else. So if you ask me, would I want to live next to a nuclear power station? I'd say, sure, if it's modern technology, if it's a modern light water reactor. But, but I would absolutely not live anywhere near a coal power station. Now, the public just don't know this because they're bombarded all the time with this completely false PR. So one of the things we, uh, uh, I think is going to be essential is that we've got to fight back. We've got to have our own PR telling the truth. We've got somehow to bypass the BBC, by bypass the television networks in the States and get the, the, the real facts which are so important to our future to, to the mass public. And we're not getting them to the mass public at all at the moment. So that's one of the important things. The 50,000 coal power stations worldwide, not a single one of them uses carbon capture. Carbon capture technology has been demonstrated. It works very well indeed, but not one of the 50,000 coal power stations use it because it would slightly lower their profits. And uh, now we've got 8, tri eight trillion tons of coal, which is easy to access. So eight, 8 trillion tons. It was 10 trillion tons. The first trillion tons were used up in 250 years. The second trillion tons were used up in 35 years. It looks as though the third trillion will be used up in about 10 years. So it's accelerating like that. And all of that acceleration is, is damaging the climate. To cause, it's cause, getting into a situation where 10 years from now we'll have extreme climate instability. So the giant problems. I've listed a collection of giant problems here. But it's important to say that along with the giant problems, there are, are giant solutions. I'm going slightly fast because I'm going to get in trouble if I don't end on time. So uh, critical multidisciplinary research, research results uh, driving global action, uh, research results being tr transformed into regulations that apply to corporations, for, uh, full natural capital accounting, global education for global responsibility.
So a lot of um, th things that can be done. Now, keeping the public informed is very important indeed. I think it would be nice in the cities if you had a display in a city like this which shows some of the main variables. It's saying, well, population is so-and-so, the local footprint is 164%, uh, and so other, other numbers like that, which are measures of how well we're doing in trying to counteract the problems that we've got today. This, I think, is about the most beautiful place on Earth. It's Patagonia incredibly, wonderfully beautiful country. And Patagonia will get better from global warming. And the fact of the matter is about a third of the Earth will be improved by global warming. So it's inevitable, I think, that you're going to get people wanting to build cities like Dubai. Dubai only took seven years to build. Colossal amount of money going into Dubai. And they built it in just about the worst place on the planet. They possibly have put it. So I think we're going to move into an era where we see climate change cities. Cities as expensive as Dubai being built as fast as Dubai in areas which will benefit from climate change or areas which are very pleasant today. So a large part of the earth will benefit from climate change. We'll build cool, cool cities in cool places. And they'll be ultra secure. They'll be designed for the 21st century. Beautiful, cultured, fully automated, intellect intensive uh, employment. And I think there'll be a large number of them. So this chart here shows the, the, the places which are going to, uh, which, are, which are very pleasant today, like Patagonia or places which are going to benefit from uh, climate change. And um, the real estate value is probably going to go up very fast. I used to be amazed in Dubai. I used to go there astonished at the speed with which they were building it. And I kept on asking people, where's the, where's the money coming from? And they all said, well, the money's coming from Citibank, and it's coming from the biggest hedge funds and so on. Why? They said, well, real estate values here are going up faster than anywhere else on the planet. So if you want to invest in real estate, invest in Dubai. Now, it's going to be the change, uh, same with the climate change cities. They're going to have real estate going up faster than anywhere else on the, on the planet. The uh, number of people living in rural areas, most people lived in rural areas, rural areas in 1750, the beginning of this story. The number of people uh, living in cities now in America well, is about 87% uh, uh, of it. Probably by the end of the century, you'll have more than 80% of the world's population living in cities. And if that happens, the more populations move to cities, the more um, wildlife reserves uh, can, can be set up because you're keeping people away from the countryside. They're all moving to the cities. This glass, perhaps in some climate change city, uh, will all generate electricity. And uh, uh, Dr. Henry Snaith here led the team that developed glass like this. He developed organic uh, solar cells, and, uh, which are very different, and decided the best application of those was glass in buildings. So they built that, and they've started a corporation for doing it. They've patented it. I sort of hate to mention one or two names here because there's so many brilliant people that, that really should be mentioned. Anyway, it's wonderful if you can live in uh, climate change cities. Absolutely terrible if you live in the shanty towns which are becoming shanty cities. This, this one in the picture here is in, in India. It has one toilet for 1,700 people. And very often, you've got two economies side by side, extreme poverty and extreme luxury side by side many places on the planet. This is an extraordinary example. The machine in the middle is a, a cricket ball throw from the 
people on the outside, which are living in extreme poverty. And uh, the person uh, underneath the machine here has got brain cancer, and this has a particle beam which is detecting the cells in the brain which have cancer, and there's another particle beam of different particles which destroys those cells. So almost certainly this is going to be a wonderful way of uh, destroying uh, brain cancer. Some hospitals are getting it. The, maybe the best cancer hospital is Sloan Kettering in the States, and they bought two of these machines, but the price is 200 million for each machine, and no insurance company will pay for it. So what we're getting, many, many examples of this is one medicine for the rich and one for the poor. Um, thank goodness for the medicine for the rich. And uh, this uh, huge slum shantytown area here is uh, in Brazil, in Rio. This is a place where the Olympic Games are going to be, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what effort goes into clearing up the shantytowns, the favelas in, in Brazil. We could use a spectrum of probabilities in which I'll use colors, these colors, for different probabilities. And so uh, getting to two degrees above the uh, baseline is certain. Uh, getting to three degrees is, seems to be highly probable. We'll cause an awful lot of damage if we do. Getting to four degrees, average probability. Getting to five degrees, low probability. We could apply those colors to several uh, different things which are going on. Climate instability, certain. Uh, high probability of global warming, uh, need to feed 10 billion people, certain. And so there are many other aspects of what we're talking about here. And one could fit them onto a, a picture like this with the colors showing the probabilities of the uh, different things happening. Now, there are many different uh, linkages between the uh, different things we've got on this diagram here. And so when you look at the whole diagram, say uh, each trend is complex. Uh, each trend needs academic work to understand it. The trends are interrelated, and multidisciplinary research is essential for studying these. And uh, if we do interdisciplinary study, then it reveals many new opportunities for things that we can do. There's going to be an avalanche of new technology. I, I think I should probably skip over that because time's going on. But what I want to say is that many new technologies, which are at the earliest stage today, and they're going to grow into massive technology with, with massive industries, many of them. I like Freeman Dyson's term, infinite in all directions. Well, many of these technologies are not quite infinite in, in all directions. Uh, computers are going up in power very rapidly indeed. And uh, in uh, 1990, computers were uh, uh, a gigascale, a billion floating-point operations per second. By two, 2010, that had gone up to petascale, which is... Uh, a thousand trillion. Uh, 2018, we'll have computers which are 10 to the 18 floating point operations per second. And we can be fairly sure about the numbers look, looking, looking ahead because the numbers come from IBM and they come from corporations like that. And they have to plan a long time ahead because the architecture of a computer 20 years from now is going to be quite different from today's architecture. It's going to use quite different basic materials. It won't use silicon chips. It will use epitaxial graphene. Fortune is going to be made out of epitaxial graphene. The software will be very difficult to build. And so because of those things, the, the big corporations, Google and IBM and Hewlett Packard and the Chinese corporations have planned ahead. So we can be fairly sure about the power of computers that are coming. 2030 to uh, 2039, uh, Zeta scale, 
Uh, zeta flops means 10 to the power of 21 floating point operations per second. And we'll need a yacht of scale, that is a, a trillion trillion operations per second to deal with the extremely complex management of the ecosystems of the planet. We'd like to completely manage all the ecosystems. We've got lots of papers about how to do that today, but we're a long way from having the computer power which would uh, make it possible. The grand illusion of our time relates to artificial intelligence, and uh, artificial intelligence will change our whole future, but it will be totally unlike human intelligence. Almost everything you read about artificial intelligence compares it with human intelligence. But in fact, 98% of artificial intelligence will be totally unlike human intelligence, and it will have the capability to increase its own intelligence. And so Nick Bostrom started to use the word superintelligence for describing computers which have artificial intelligence but increase it, increase it, increase it, increase it at their, their own speed. So this will be a very important part of it. Quantum computing, a lot of work going on that in Oxford. We may get quantum computers in 10 years' time. The outer limit is 20 years. Probably I think it's going to be closer to 10 years. And quantum computing will improve its own capability at quantum speed. So when things are changing that fast, you can ask, how on earth are ordinary people going to manage with such an extreme rate of change? The very brilliant people are going to love it because they're going to be in, in great demand. So the most in, intellectual people are you know, top 5%, maybe top 1% are going to be capable of earning huge salaries in the world that we're describing. This avalanche will continue for the whole century with accelerating speed and... Uh, accelerating a force. By 2030, 80%, and this has been estimated by the computer companies, 80% of all human work will probably be done better by machine than by humans, or more reliably by machine than by humans. So we're moving to a time when most work will be done by machines, and humans will spend their time doing things which machines can't do. We would want humans to do things which are uniquely human. And that really is the long-term future. So a leisure revolution is inevitably part of this. There was a, a, a speech in the Sheldonian not long ago called the bonfire of the vanities. And that's the last thing you want. Rather than the bonfire of the vanities, it's very important to say we need major attention to the humanities because leisure will become huge. People have lots of leisure time, and they want to use their leisure time to uh, get the best quality of life possible. And so we're not paying much attention to humanities today, but it's going to be very important in the future. This is the king of Bhutan. He's decided he's going to be a democratic king, and he says GDP is a nonsense. He must measure happiness. So he's created a lot of economists have gone to see what he's doing, created uh, measurements for his country of gross national happiness. Uh, Transhumanism is a technique for modifying uh, human beings. This is a real photograph. The man there is sitting in front of a computer game, and he's got something on his head which enables him to move the cursor by thought, move the cursor by th thinking. He has to train himself a little bit to do that. Um, this is the beginning of something very big, brain, the brain-computer interface. That's a very simplistic brain-computer interface, but we're going to be able to put things with nanotechnology with a lot of power inside the skull or on the edge of the skull. So a brain-computer interface is going to be a very important part of the improvement of human beings. And you'll have people walking down the streets where each one has got the brain-computer interface in his head. And it's interacting with other people 
so he, he automatically knows things about other people. So I suspect that uh, brain-computer interface transmitters will be as common as iPhones in uh, 20, years, 20 years from now. Now, humans have 23 uh, pairs of chromosomes. We don't want to genetically modify humans because they will pass it on to their children and lots of things will go wrong. So that's absolutely, absolute no-no. But we can put a 24th chromosome into your body and you cannot pass that on to your children. And in the 24th chromosome, you can have all the, all the genes that, that you want. So put many new types of genes into the human body and probably a lot of people are still going to say, even the 24th chromosome, don't do it. That's genetic modification. We don't want to do that. Do you think the Chinese are not going to do it? When this technology works, they'll do it at a furious rate. And so there are several different types of transhumanism. Uh, Non-biological body components, the 24th chromosome, brain-computer interface. And this will probably take off when the uh, consumer marketplace gets hold of it advertises it in, uh, in their uh, magazines and things. Uh, advertisement saying, does your child have cognitive enhance, lack cognitive enhancements? Imagine what most women are going to want to do with advertisements like that. Interesting one, does humanity lack moral enhancements? Julian Chevalescu is very strong on that subject and he believes we can change people's susceptibility to do the, the right thing from the morality point of view with, with chemicals. We can do it biologically. So this is a wonderful book he's just written. That's a great read. And it's saying we're unfit for the future and to make ourselves fit for the things we're talking about, you need moral enhancements, new sets of values. So he's setting out to say, what are the values that are necessary for the 21st century? Very, very important subject being studied. And then you want moral enhancement to try and change things. So a Copernican revolution, he says, in human values. And this is what he's uh, studying here. Um, let me skip on a little bit. Warfare, uh, huge uh, changes in, in, in warfare. These are the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In, in many cases, there'll be no battlefield in warfare. Uh, there'll be non-state acts of warfare, and so the enemy is not a country anymore. In fact, you don't know what the enemy is. There'll be autonomous, norm, enormous quantities of autonomous robotic weapons. Nuclear terrorism, if we don't do something to stop it, it's essential we should do something to stop it. But cyber warfare is likely to come from anywhere. How many military men uh, do you think understand the mind of the super hacker? This is um, the plane that Britain is going to be using as its fighter plane, the main fighter plane of the next 25 years, the F-35. And a million lines of code, it has incredibly complex code, a million lines of code was stolen from this. They don't know how, it was stolen by a hacker. But the interesting thing is they can't be sure that the hacker hasn't left Trojan horses, which are not detectable, but which could be switched on when the fighter is in battle. The last two months have been attacks on banks, denial of service attacks. And the amazing statistic is there have been periods where you've had 100 gigabytes per second, every second, of interference with servers causing denial of service in banks. So this is a, a huge uh, issue. So cyber technology and how do we prevent cyber crime and uh, cyber warfare is very, very important. In the age of uh, robotic weapons, the, the, the thing the military always says is, war is about human courage. 
you think that's about human courage, it's more like a video game. And we're going to have enormous numbers of robots, intelligent robots, coming from all manner of different companies, swarming robots. Um, this is from uh, Britain, and one of the things they say is it's, uh, it can use unmanned weapons to kill. But then they use the word autonomous. And this is a, a really dangerous word in talking about future weapons. Autonomous capability for robotic weapons to kill uh, humans. So this is the world we're moving into. Baron von Klauswitz is famous for saying, war is the extension of politics by other means. Uh, but no political uh, incentive, objective, could justify nuclear war or other war with the high technology weapons. So we're moving into a time where there'll either be no war between high tech nations or else there'll be no civilization. And I think that is the biggest paradigm shift of all the paradigm shifts we're going to talk about here. A huge change. Of course, wonderful change. If there's no war between high tech civilizations, that's great for my grandchildren. And, uh, but, but not necessarily great for the generals. So transforming at the end of the century into uh, an evolving renaissance, there's a whole lot of things, a long list of these which are big problems today, like the extreme difference between rich and poor, the damage we're doing to the climate, the damage we're doing to the oceans. And I assume that by the end of the century, we're going to have dealt with those. And so this, these are the paradigms. It's difficult, wrenching to deal with, but by the end of the century, we'll probably have conquered them. And then we move into a uh, uh, century. We'd like to do it much earlier than the end of the century. But once they're there, then move into an evolving renaissance. And so we could ask, what is a, a, a renaissance uh, going to be like? Certainly, it's going to be global. What can a high-tech renaissance do? Uh, there'll be planes at six times the speed of sound. The military's building those now. And they'll probably be used for civilians to get to. Uh, very rich people to get to climate change cities. Uh, there will be more Muslims than Christians. Wilderness gardens and computer clipped gardens. Endless new inventions, powerful solutions. New corporations doing these things. And our extraordinary technology needs human values for the 21st century. So working out what those human values are and working out what the consequences of change values are is very, very important piece of research. Understanding the macro problems. <coughs> so many of the macro problems never get talked about. The public don't seem to know about them. Certainly the politicians don't know about them. And the people in the elections don't know about them. <coughs> Visions of possible destinations. Where, where are we going? Where do we want to go? We're putting a huge amount of energy into making the train more efficient, making the train go faster, but not thinking about what is the destination of the train. So interdisciplinary research is a powerhouse for tackling these massive issues. And that's what we're doing at the Oxford Martin School. Thank you.